Well, good morning to everybody. It's nice in here. It certainly isn't outside. So we're glad the roof isn't leaking or something. All right. Well, we are now uh, up to the grain offerings. We started this last week, and it's all under the heading of the fact that uh, the only way to approach a holy God is through sacrifice. And we saw in the uh, ascension offering, or more commonly known as the burnt offering, that the emphasis is on the entire consumption of the animal, totally burned up with fire, and it is the shedding of the animal's blood that is taking the place of the sinner. Uh, And so the sinner quite definitely realizes this is God's plan for how I'm to be uh, in, a, in a holy condition where I can actually uh, fellowship with the Lord. And then last week we started the grain offering and we said that essentially grain offerings usually accompanied the ascension or burnt offering just as a meal for an honored person would consist of both meat and bread. Now in the ancient world, people didn't eat as much meat as we do. I don't know, my mom growing up, it wasn't a complete meal unless it contained some kind of meat. Fish, chicken, beef, it had to have meat. But in the ancient world, it was probably a fairly rare occurrence when uh, a person would have a meal with lamb Oh, I love leg of lamb. But maybe sometimes beef. Um, This wasn't all that often. But they always had bread. And so when Christ said, I'm the bread of life, that was indicative of the fact that uh, he is saying, look, I'm the staple of life. Uh, I, I am the one who's the author of life. I sustain life. And that's what bread was to an ancient person. And so when we are talking about the grain offerings, we are talking about something the uh, believer offers that is going to be indicative of his recognition that day by day, it is only the Lord that sustains his life. And it it was a very uh, precious thing to uh, be able to give to the Lord a certain portion of his his, um, offering here from, uh uh-oh, what is this? I got a, okay, there we go. Uh, It was his gracious privilege to offer to the Lord the symbol of what it was to have a consecrated life, a recognition that, yes, everything in my life is from the Lord. And along with the the meat offering or the, the burnt offering, that was a picture that was all burned up. That's a complete and utter resignation of that very costly animal, whatever it was, 
uh, that I'm giving this to the Lord and I'm not getting anything back. It's, it's a part of my devotion to <clears throat> what God has done in delivering me from Egypt. And so it is for believers today when we are called upon to uh, make a sacrifice of ourselves, a living sacrifice, holy, blameless, acceptable to the Lord. Uh, we give our entire life to him, and we, we are not keeping it for ourselves. Now, of course, as we said before, trouble with a living sacrifice is that it can, it can crawl off the altar. That's why it's necessary so often for us to go back to Romans 12.1 and to, in fact, tell the Lord once again, Lord, I recognize that I've taken over this control of my life I, and I shouldn't, I shouldn't have done that. So I'm giving that part of my life back to you. I'm giving it all to you. And along with the, with the meat offering, the, the burnt offering comes, the uh, grain offering. Now, grain offerings were uh, detailed in four sections in Leviticus uh, chapter 2. First of all, the uncooked grain. So let's take a look at verses 1 through 3. When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour. That is, we already said, very finely ground, very expensive. He shall pour oil on it, and put frankincense on it, and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests. And that frankincense, of course, would be burned up entirely. That was expensive. Frankincense was a rare uh, aromatic gum. It was uh, cost the offerer a considerable amount. The priest shall burn this as a memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now, it's not as if God is eating this. That's not the idea of the food offering. Calling it a food offering is just saying that this is something that God finds pleasing. That aroma of the burning frankincense, along with a representation of daily sustenance for the believer. That is entirely appropriate to go with the burnt offering. But the rest of the grain offering, verse 3 says, shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. So the grain offering was not entirely consumed. Much of it went to the priest. All right, then we have the cooked grain offering. Number, verse number four, when you bring a grain offering baked in the oven as an offering, it shall be unlimited loaves of fine flour mixed with oil or unleavened wafers smeared with oil. So you had various ways of cooking the grain offering. One could be in an oven. Don't think of, uh, you know, your convection oven at home, <laughs> all my, our oven is so com complicated that, I mean, I have to practically get out the manual even to work the thing. And uh, my wife knows all that. It's a good thing. Uh, 
But no, this is, think more of um, something like a pizza oven you might see, a wood-fired pizza oven made of brick. This was probably made of mud brick. And uh, you'd light a fire in there, let it burn, get it real hot, scrape the coals out, put in the uh, dough, and it was unleavened dough, and it would cook quite rapidly. Uh, It shall be unleavened loaves of flour mixed with oil. Okay, and if your offering is a grain offering baked on a griddle, that was kind of a convex affair, uh, might be made of some sort of metal or perhaps uh, uh, another uh, like ceramic type of griddle. And typically that was not very thick and it was much uh, drier than the thing that was cooked in the oven. Uh, But once again, it shall be a fine flour mixed with oil. Uh, You shall break it in pieces and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. Notice how oil, olive oil, is always a component of this. And uh, later on, of course, as we encounter the kings of Israel the priests of Israel, the prophet of Israel, they were all kind of smeared or poured with olive oil. That was the symbol of the Holy Spirit's anointing of that person for the, for the accomplishment of the ministry that he was to have. And so here, I think it's the same kind of picture. This is a recognition that this This uh, mixture of oil with a fine flour is the the operation of the Holy Spirit. It's what uh, gives comfort in life. Olive oil was basically the only thing people could use to moisturize their skin, for instance. Uh, Living in in a really dry, arid place would get your skin all dried out. But uh, olive oil was something you could rub on yourself. Might be even better than the the moisturizers we have today. And uh, so that was something that was uh, an enjoyment in life. It was essential to uh, a key ingredient of uh, what we need to survive, and that's fat. You know, these days, fat kind of gets a bad rap, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, oh, fat, it's bad, bad, bad. Actually, fat has twice the calories per gram as carbohydrates do. And your body needs essential fats. And olive oil is one of the absolutely most, well, I don't know what you would say, healthy of all the oils. Maybe avocado oil would be up there, same, or coconut oil. But whatever the case, uh, this was representative of what people needed to thrive health-wise and uh, be, be satiated in their, in their eating. Uh, if your gra- offering is a grain offering cooked in a pan, okay, here's a third way of cooking. It is a grain offering, and if your offering or, excuse me, is cooked in a pan, it shall be made of fine flour with oil. 
always the oil is mixed in. And you shall bring the grain offering that is made of these things to the Lord, and when it is presented to the priest, he shall bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take from the grain offering its memorial portion and burn this on the altar. The idea of the memorial portion is that part that's burned on the altar, the bronze altar, and it causes God to remember the offerer. That's the idea of memorial. It comes from a Hebrew word, which means to remember. Now, it's not as if God forgot anything. God doesn't doesn't forget. He's omniscient, and uh, he doesn't need to be reminded, oh, yes, okay, well, you know, there's Jim Peeler. Uh, Now I, oh, I've forgotten about Jim. No, no, no. Uh, What it is, it's a It's a way the Lord is telling us, I'm at this moment uh, choosing to remember you in the sense that I'm going to bless you. And I'm I'm thankful that I have people who know me and serve me and are willing to recognize that everything in their life must be devoted to me. And... That's a wonderful thing when that takes place. And, and so this is, a, this is a food offering, the end of verse 9 says, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's uh, food offerings. All right, then we have a... a uh, delineation of the specific ingredients. No grain offering that you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven. Why not? What's wrong with leaven? I mean, do you want to bake a a loaf of bread in the oven and have it about, you know, like one and a half inches thick, all dense and, well, yeah, that's not, it'll still be edible, but it won't be as good as a nice leavened loaf would be. Oh, yeah. So what's wrong with leaven? And the text doesn't tell us what's wrong with leaven. But it always says, this is the way the Israelites, when they left Egyptian bondage, the Lord would say, you know, "Don't, don't put leaven in your bread. It's a symbol of how you had to leave Egypt very quickly. And so... No, no leaven, it's a reminder of that, that that's how fast we had to leave Egypt, Egyptian control. Uh, so in that sense, leaven seems to be a good thing. But then again, too, uh, in the rest of Scripture, as we go on through the Scriptures, many times leaven is a picture of rapidly spreading corruption, and therefore entirely inappropriate in the grain offering. And not only that, you don't, you're not going to make any bread with leaven, and you shall not use honey as a food offering to the Lord. Now, the way leaven works, it's got to have sugar. Those little, those little yeasty organisms need sugar to survive. 
And what they do is they convert that sugar into alcohol, ethanol, and uh, carbon dioxide gas. That's the carbon dioxide gas is what makes the bread rise. <clears throat> and, um, but we don't want that to happen in the grain offering. So, we're, you know, they didn't have sucrose, you know, cane sugar or high fructose corn syrup in these days. Is basically, if you wanted something sweet, you used honey from a beehive, or sometimes the word refers to a very thick, gooey uh, substance that would come from boiling down grapes, for instance. You boil down grape juice, you end up with this concentrated, gooey, very sweet substance. None of that in the uh, food offering. Nothing, nothing that would enhance the possibility that there might be some leaven, small, teeny amount, uh, that would actually be fueled by this sweetness being added. As an offering of first fruits, you may bring them to the Lord, uh, and uh, they shall not be offered on the uh, they shall be offered on the altar for a pleasing aroma. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. All right, now let's ask the question, why salt? Every grain offering was to have salt. Once again, salt was a pretty valuable commodity back during these days. Couldn't go to the grocery store and buy that Morton's iodized salt, you know, where have got the girl with the umbrella on the, on the canister, and it's, it's cheap as dirt, you know, so salt is not very expensive. There's sodium chloride everywhere. It's deposited on the cliffs uh, by Ireland. How many of you have ever bought sea salt that's dug out of the cliffs of Ireland? Oh, it's pretty cool. It's supposed to be good for you. It's supposed to have other trace elements in there, not just sodium chloride. And uh, so, you know, we're used to salt. But in the Roman period, uh, salt was so expensive that it became the salary for a Roman soldier. Uh, salary comes from the same Latin word that uh, forms the word salt. Can you imagine getting a little bag of salt for a month's work in the army? But it was extremely valuable. And salt apparently here pictures the incorruptibility of the covenant that God has made with his people on Mount Sinai in chapters 20 through 24 of Exodus. Uh, Salt does in fact retard uh, corruption, things going bad, especially meat. And so in the old days before, uh, you know, we had things like nitrites to, uh, to keep corruption from happening and like a slab of bacon. You'd put it in a smokehouse, rub it down with salt, and that bacon was good to go for quite a while. And that's apparently the picture here of adding in salt. You shall not 
let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. Notice this is the salt of the covenant with your God. Once again, picturing its incorruptibility, its its everlasting quality. When God made a covenant with Israel, when the God made the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, some aspects of that covenant were unconditional. The Mosaic covenant was conditioned on the obedience of people to the specific ordinances of the covenant. But nonetheless, God never goes back on his word. And the salt was to picture that. And then verse 14, we have uh, some uh, idea here of the first fruits as a grain offering. Verse 14, if you offer a grain offering of first fruits to the Lord, that's merely speaking about the first cutting of grain. Uh, And so basically, the offerer was not to uh, harvest his grain and then say to himself, well, if I have any grain left over after I've stored away what I need, then I'll give it to the Lord. No, no, the very first at, uh, the very first part of your grain harvest, the first fruits, that was to be devo- uh, devoted to the Lord, and uh, it was it was once again a picture of the fact that the offerer considers this to be his greatest uh, heartfelt delight to offer to the Lord what was representative of his daily um, his daily food. And so, if it's a grain offering of the first fruits of the, to the Lord, you shall offer for the grain offering of your fr- uh, first fruits fresh ears, roasted with fire, crushed new grain. And you shall put oil on it, lay frankincense on it. It is a grain offering. And the, the priest shall burn it, once again, as a memorial portion. Lord, here I am. I'm I'm devoting myself, all that I am to you, everything I have belongs to you, me, my, my, the, the food I need to survive, everything I give to you. And the Lord would, would bless a person like that. The priest shall burn it as a memorial portion. Uh, some of the grain, crushed grain and some of the oil with all of its frankincense. It is a food offering to the Lord. Wonderful picture of the entire devotion of all, believer, all that the believer needs to survive uh, is being offered to the Lord. You know, sometimes it can be hard for us if we don't make, you know, even enough money to make ends meet. That's a problem that needs to be remedied. But uh, we are tempted to say, to say to ourselves, you know, if I have something left over at the end of the month, I'm going to give it to the Lord in the offering at church. But uh, the Lord wants us to trust him, to trust that we uh, give to him uh, an, an appropriate amount as the Lord has blessed us. For some people, 
that amount is 50% of what they make. It's said that Charles Wesley made a lot of money off of the hymns he wrote. He started off in life uh, giving to the Lord 10%. But by the end of, the lo- of, the, of his life, he had taken uh, the other 90% and switched it around. He gave 90% to the Lord and kept 10 for himself. Rather than increasing his, his lifestyle commensurate with his income, he said, nope, I'm going to live the same I did when I wasn't making much money. The Lord gets everything in, you know, in excess of what my, my lifestyle uh, would, would dictate. So he was making so much money, he could give 90% and live on 10. Wow, that's a commendable action on his part. All right, the peace offerings, Leviticus chapter 3. Now, are you realizing at this point how specific these offerings are? You know, if you decide to yourself, well, I don't have any olive oil today, or I don't have any salt in the house, therefore, I'm going to bring an offering without those things. No, no. You'd better wait till you do have some olive oil. You better wait till you do have salt. Because these things are very specific. And after we're done looking at all the uh, mosaic legislation for offerings, we might think to ourselves, wow, the Lord is very specific about how he should be approached. It's only through the way he has designated that this is important to the Lord. And it's like that in our lives as well. The Lord wants us to be very careful, very precise the way we worship him. It must be a scriptural way. All right, so here we go. Peace offerings. The term peace offerings is related to a Hebrew word that is familiar to us. And it's the word shalom. If nobody knows any Hebrew except for one word, it's shalom. People use it as a greeting, even in Israel today. Shalom. Hello. How are you doing? Is it well with you? And uh, so this is the plural form of this, shalomim, literally peace offerings. And so we need to understand what the idea of peace is. It refers to a lot more than cessation of hostilities. It refers basically to everything as it ought to be. For instance... How can you bring a peace offering to the Lord if you know there's an area of sin in your life that is marring your relationship with God? You've got to first confess that sin, you forsake it, then you're in a position to bring a peace offering. It's what, like what the Lord said. Uh, if you are bringing your offering to the altar... And you remember 
that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there, go be reconciled to your brother, and then come and make your offering. It's the same concept here. This requires this peace offering is voluntary, but it, it, it absolutely demands that the believer examine his life, make, <clears throat> making sure <clears throat> there's no uh, personal sin, and that his relationship with the Lord and with other people is what it should be. When he remembers, <clears throat> when the members of a uh, covenantal relationship uh, ate the, a fellow, a fellowship meal together, whoops, it was, let's go back here, whoops, it was a sign that all was well among the participants of that fellowship meal. And this is what for, uh, chapter 3 is going to talk about. Uh, it was a time where uh, the <coughs> one offering, the fellowship offering, or peace offering, would join in a meal of part of the grain. And so this involved the offerer. It also involved the priest. And as the priest represented man to God, it was, it was Yahweh himself who, as the guarantee, the guarantor of the covenantal faithfulness, uh, was present uh, there with the offering and the meal. It was a wonderful time. The peace offering started, much as the burnt offering. Notice, if this offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, if he offers an animal from the herd, male or female. Now, the burnt offering could only be a male animal. This could be <clears throat> a male or a female. He shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. This is basically the same thing as a burnt offering. He shall lay his hand on the head of his offering. Once again, lean his weight on the head of the offering. Kill it by slitting its throat. And then Aaron's sons, the priest, shall throw or splash the blood against the sides of the altar. Uh, notice this is an animal from the herd. We're talking here a cow, an ox, uh, one of these large herd animals. So he would, there would be a lot of blood to splash against the altar. And from the sacrifice of the peace offering, uh, and so <clears throat> that's why the peace offering is described after the, uh, the grain offering. He shall offer the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the, of the liver, that he shall remove with the kidneys. Then Aaron's sons shall burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering. There was a daily burnt offering 
So this now, this uh, peace offering would be burned along with the daily offering, which is on the wood of the fire. It is a food offering with a pleasing aroma uh, to the Lord. All right, so here we then see that uh, in the peace offering, it was primarily the fat that was on the animal. All right, so you might say to yourself, well, you know, what is there about the fat that was so important? Verses 3 through 5 make it clear that only the fat from the herd animal was to be burned on the bronze altar. What's the significance of the fat? Let's say you go to a steakhouse and you get a particular cut of steak that has considerable amount of fat mixed in. Or something like a beef brisket down at a barbecue place. And that, that brisket has a pretty thick layer of fat on it. What do you do with the fat? How many people here eat it all? Okay. How many people cut it off and don't eat it? Me. I just you know, don't want to eat it. Uh, but in the ancient world, the fat was the very most highly prized part of the meat. And so it might sound kind of disgusting to us today, that they, that they loved it so much and so highly prized it, but that was the way they viewed it. Uh, we have some very interesting and strange, uh, you know, various uh, views about what people eat in the, in the world. If you go to China, um, I've never been to China, but if you go... Basically, you eat what's put in front of you without asking questions because they eat some weird stuff like chicken feet. Yum, yum. Doesn't that sound disgusting? Uh, when my wife's, one of my wife's brothers went on a medical mission team to Azerbaijan, they, you know what they served him? Well, they were serving lamb that day and the most honored guest, and he, my brother-in-law is a heart surgeon. He was doing amazing jobs uh, operating on children, especially who, who weren't going to survive very long. And so he was considered the honored guest. They gave him the sheep's head with a skull cut in half, and the sheep's brain, and you spooned it out, and you ate it. John, you're nodding. You know, do you know this custom? <laughs> yeah. This, and what do you do in a situation like that? Uh, well, you go ahead and eat it, I guess. It sounds disgusting to us, but this is, this is how the ancient uh, Near East person would have viewed the fat. In the ancient Near East, fat was considered the choicest part of the animal. In fellowship meals between a king and his vassals, the king always got the fat. All right, so if you've got, if you've got a, a, a mighty king and he's having a feast 
where the people who uh, have signed on to a covenant with him, that he will protect them, and they are to adhere to the stipulations he's making in this covenant, then he got the fat in a particular meal. So that's the significance. Then the rest of the sacrifice was shared between the offerer and the priest. And so this, uh, this text is very clear that uh, it was a fellowship meal. And it pictured, indeed, uh, what it was to be at peace between the one who had made the covenant with you, in this case the Lord, and the people who had been redeemed out of Egyptian bondage. God had made a covenant with them on, on Mount Sinai, and they were the ones then who were the vassals. They were dependent on this king who had made a covenant with them, that he would protect them. And as long as they met the stipulations of the covenant, God would bless them and, and make them prosper. And so obviously then, the Lord would get the best portion. But what a wonderful thing. Here they were, seated with the priest, God's representative. They, they were holy before the Lord. Not like the priest was. There are various levels of holiness. But the, the, the offerer who had offered a burnt offering, he'd offered a peace offering, he was right with the Lord, walking with the Lord, then this was a, this was a picture of rest in this covenant that the king had made with the average Israelite. The rest of the chapter describes a peace offering taken from a flock, okay, could be a sheep or a goat. Didn't have to be a big herd animal. Verse 17 makes it clear that no one in Israel could eat any fat or blood even at home. Look what, look what it says here in verse 17. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. The, the Hebrew word for dwelling places basically refers to your home. So you can't eat fat or blood at any time, not at the tabernacle, not in your own home. Why? The blood represented the uh, aspect of the fact that that animal's life is its blood. Only the Lord owns the lives of the animals that we eat. Uh, and we were not, we are, the Israelite was not to eat any blood in recognition that God is the one who owns that animal's life, not us. And of course, the fat, that was always what, what uh, God got, his portion of the sacrifice. Uh, inter- it's an interesting thing. There are several kinds of sheep, and uh, the one kind of sheep that it talks about here in these verses is the flat-tailed sheep. I did, uh, one of the commentators said, this flat tail could 
weigh as much as 13 kilograms, that's about 30 pounds, of mostly pure fat. I don't know why the sheep was like that. I suspect uh, in lean times when there wasn't much food, the sheep could live off the fat. Uh, and uh, sometimes when I look in the mirror, I think, ah, oh, well, you ought to be able to survive for a while, Yeagley. Uh, <laughs> fat to live off. I know it doesn't look like I have much fat, but uh, I do around, I have some around my midsection I could get rid of. And I, but it's there to live off of someday. Significance for us today. In Luke 22:20, 20, our Savior at the Last Supper says, This is the blood of the covenant shed for you. And of course, in Exodus 24, 8, it is stated that in fact, <clears throat> After all the sacrifices that were presented, the Lord called Moses and 70 elders to go up on the side of the mountain, not the top, only Moses could go there, but up the side of the mountain, and they sat down and had a fellowship meal with God himself. And now at the tabernacle, this is representative of what happened on the side of Mount Sinai as God was impressing on his people. What we do here, you're going to do for the whole history of Israel in the tabernacle and ultimately in the temple. There is a continuity here of this sacrifice. All right, so that's why we say God can dwell with mankind only through sacrifice. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful that in fact our Savior shed his blood on Calvary's cross to establish the covenant through his blood. He is the one who brings all the Levitical sacrificial system to a conclusion. And now we participate in a new covenant. A new covenant that is better than the old covenant. A new covenant that shows us the reality of everything the old covenant merely foreshadowed. Thank you, Lord, that our Savior has shed his blood once for all. The just for the unjust. And we stand in that new covenant. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.